Great to see you this morning. Uh, many of you look so fantastic. Uh, we're so glad to have you. If you're uh, joining us for the very first time at Stone Point, hey, we are so excited that you're here. I uh, look forward to putting a face with the name, getting to know you. Uh, we would certainly love uh, to help you follow Jesus more fully. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you don't mind, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. If you have been with us uh, throughout the last uh, series of months, uh, we have been walking systematically through the book of Romans. Uh, we still have a couple of months to go, uh, but uh, we are landing now in what I would think of the practical application of all that we learn. And it starts in Romans chapter 12, and it goes through Romans chapter 16. And uh, I just encourage you, as much as you possibly can over the series of weeks that are to come to be here because it is so practical in everything that we are uh, and all that God's calling us to be. And so hope that you'll join us. If you're turning to Romans chapter 12, I want to tell you a story about a guy named Cyrus the Great. He was the uh, really the founder of the Persian Empire. And there's a story that goes a long way back about um, Cyrus the Great interacting with a, a prince that had been captured in war along with his family. And uh, this prince comes before him after his summons to the king. Uh, and so uh, he summons him before him and he looks at the prince and he just says, hey, listen, um, I've got you and I've got your wife and your family. And he goes, what, what would you give me in order to let you go? And the prince said, I will give you half of everything that I have if you'll let me go. And he said, well, what would it take to let your children go? And he said, I'll give you everything I own if you let my children go. He says, but what about your wife? She's beautiful. What would it take to let her go? And the prince fell on his knees and he said, I will give you my life if you let my wife and my children go. And the story goes that Cyrus the Great was so taken back by this prince and his sacrifice that it looked him in the eyes. He said, I'm actually going to let your entire family go because of your sacrifice and your willingness to give your life and all of your possessions so that you and your family could go free. And they go free. And as they're going free, this young prince uh, on their caravan, uh, as they have their entourage going back, he, he looks to his wife and he says, did you look into Cyrus, the great's eyes? Did you see how handsome of a man that he was? And his wife says, I never looked at him because I was taken back by the sacrifice of my husband. And that right there just captivates my heart. And I think it in some ways puts into words what it looks like for us to be a sacrifice. And what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 12 is he is talking to a group of Romans and he has spent 11 chapters helping them understand who they are, what they're not, what they can expect. And then he gets to this point and it's a shift in the narrative of the letter and he, he says these words. He says, I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercy. And so he, he just says, I appeal to you. I, I'm making an appeal to you. And then he uses the word therefore. And anytime you see a therefore, you just want to see what it's there for. And so you look back. It causes you to go backwards. And so in this particular case, what he is doing is, is he is saying, I urge you in view of God's mercies. So what are the mercies of God? The mercies of God that you don't get the punishment and the wrath and the vengeance of God that you deserve because you're a sinner. And he goes, and so look back and see what it is that God has demonstrated. And we know from the very beginning of the book in Romans chapter one, that the wrath of God has been revealed against unrighteousness. 
We know that according to chapter 2, that everyone is unrighteous, whether you're a Jew or Gentile. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, we know that there's not one that is righteous, not even one. And then God, that God uses Paul just to build the case that we all are deserving of a penalty of sin. But then God offers us adoption by sonship into his family through his son, Jesus. Oh, we know we're not placed under the law, but we're placed under grace. It, we're not bound by our own righteousness, but we're bound for the one who was righteous in our place. And so the idea of adoption is that we are now part of a family. We see that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been adopted into the family of God. We have a helper. We have one who teaches us and guides us and comforts us. We see that we have the help of God's promise in all of our affliction. We know that there's no condemnation in Christ. We know there's nothing that separates us from God. We know that there is no one that can be against us. Because Paul says in Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we just see this case being built. We see the case uh, about being in uh, God's presence uh, as the elect, as his people. We stand before him and we know that there's a remnant that's still in Israel, and we know that the gospel's gone forth to the Gentiles, and we know he's making his appeal through the Gentiles, ultimately to even bringing back his people, the Jews, for his own sovereign purposes in the end. And so there's all these promises that we see throughout this text. And then he says, and so in view of all those things, he goes, I'm making an appeal to you by the mercies of God that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, there's a bunch of men in the room that they're hearing this, and this was actually the same exact text that we had together at man camp this weekend. And so for a lot of them, their memory is being jogged, and probably they're like, man, how in the world is that we're going to talk about this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? They can't get away from it, you know? There's others of you are like, okay, I'm just being reminded. But either way, it's an interesting thing how God in his sovereign foreknowledge will take a verse like this and a series of planning months and months in advance and use them for his own glory and good on one weekend. And so there's some of us in this room that we've been saturating and marinating on this text for a couple of days, and there's others of us that we're getting it now. And when we get this idea now, listen, I'm going to give you the full dose, the full measure today of what God is teaching me. And when I think about this idea of presenting your bodies a living sacrifice, I can't help but think about what Paul meant here. Paul talking to a group of, of, of Romans who are Jews and Gentiles alike. He has a heart we see clearly uh, for his brothers and sisters who uh, are Jewish. But he uses this idea of a living sacrifice, which in the Old Testament, sacrificial system was something that the Jew knew plainly. But the thing about a sacrifice in the Old Testament is the interesting thing is that you always had death. If, it didn't matter if it was a lamb. It didn't matter if it was a goat. It didn't matter if it was a bull. It didn't matter if it was a dove. It didn't matter what the means of sacrifice was. It always required death and bloodshed. There was always an appeasement of God's holiness. And through his holiness, there was always bloodshed to appease ultimately his holiness to bring about forgiveness for someone. And it always required death. Now, let's think about that real quickly. When you have a dead sacrifice, it means you have a heart that no longer beats. You have lungs that no longer fill up. 
Um, you have a life that no longer goes forward. So there's no walking, there's no talking, there's no hands being moved. You have someone who is lifeless and has lost all capacity for service. And that's what it looks like to be a dead sacrifice. Useful, but not living. But isn't it interesting because the sacrificial system that would have been happening in the Jews' days is um, soon coming to an end. Jesus has come. Paul is identifying with his audience that you are to be a living sacrifice. What is he pointing them to? He's pointing them to something that's already happened ultimately through Christ, but also what Christ calls us to be as his living sacrifice. And so as a living sacrifice, it means that you have a heart that does beat. It means that you have a heart that is to be fully devoted and rendered in service. It means that even in this moment, God continues to sustain us and our lungs are filled with his breath. And the question is, is why is it that God continues to renew our strength with a heart that beats and lungs that fill up with breath so that we would sing to him, that we would speak of who he is, that we would continue in many ways to point others to the magnificent power and even the sustenance in which he offers us just by keeping our mortal bodies alive. And then not only that, but we have mortal bodies and our mortal bodies ultimately um, can sing and can be devoted to him. But even more than that, at this particular point in time, we are a priesthood of believers, what Peter says. And so it means we are fit for service. So when he says you are to be a living sacrifice, ultimately what he is saying is you are to render yourself to the service of God. And what is it that's supposed to be rendered in service to God? Do you remember what he said right there? He says, you're, oh, hold on, that was really bad. Are you already checked out? Because we got a long way to go. Your what is rendered in service to God? Your body, your bodies. Your body is rendered in service to God. So if your body is rendered as a living sacrifice to God, then the question is, is why your body? I mean, of all the things that we could render in service to God, why is it that he desires our body? Because ultimately our body has a great impact on who we are and what it is that God desires us to become. Now I'll tell you, to be a living sacrifice means that you continue to daily die. And my challenge in being a living sacrifice is that oftentimes I want to crawl off the altar. Like sometimes I go, God, like, I, like there's got to be something better. And some, sometimes I desire comfort. Sometimes I desire my own path, my own desires, my own way. And, and it's just continually offering our bodies a living sacrifice. Because a living sacrifice is, is not dead. A dead sacrifice can no longer be offered again. Catch that. So once a dove has been offered once, it's, it's done. There's, there's no ability to offer again. But you and I, a continual sacrifice daily. It renders the idea in our minds of what Paul writes to the church of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Many of you know this verse. Maybe you have it memorized. It's one I've just committed to memory. I've been crucified with Christ. And so what does that look like? It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so he goes on. He says, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, the one who called me, right? The one who loved me. The one who gave himself up for me. Paul says, what's it look like to be crucified with Christ? What's it look like to 
render your body in service to God? What's it look like to render your life in service to the one who ultimately gave you the body? Now, I'm going to take just a quick pause and, 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 and I'm going to give you a couple of things to think about. And the reason I'm going to give that to you is because there are some parents in here that you have teenagers and you need to know what we're talking about. Um, and because on Wednesday nights, we're spending a great deal of time right now. Uh, we've talked about redemption. Um, we've talked about what the church is, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And right now we're talking about identity. And all those things work hand in hand. As we talk about identity, we're the, the two places we've started so far is who, who are we and who is God? Because when you answer those two questions, ultimately everything else flows out of those. But what is interesting, and this week we're going to talk about uh, with our students a handful of things. And friends, parents, if your students aren't here, listen, the next handful of weeks, we're going to be talking about important issues that flow out of those two questions. If you need to come sit with them because you can't trust us, you're like, hey, look, are they, we think you are crazy and you're going to hurt our kids. Come sit, hang out. Make them come. Why? You're like, oh, that would be torture, right? Making them come. Yes, it would. I promise. But I, I'm telling you, these are important. And here's why. Listen, here's why. And I know there's some teenagers in here going, oh, gosh, now I got to go this Wednesday, right? Why? Okay, so here's what I want you to connect real quick. Our bodies, our bodies are to be a living sacrifice. Now think about this. Why is your body important? Your body is important because of what your body is offering right now in service to God. Now, have you ever thought about why or what your body is doing? Paul writes to the church of Corinth and he gives them the idea. He helps them understand why the body is important. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Three chapters earlier, which we read uh, on our reading plan, if you're reading through it with us in 1 Corinthians, we read just a couple of weeks ago, says, do you not know that you're, that in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. I had to highlight that and I had to go back and read for a little while because I'm like, I'm not always great with the body. So God like, okay, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you're going to destroy my body. Like, okay, that, what's the implication? He goes on though and he just says this, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So what is his point? His point is, is that you are an image bearer of God. And I think where we oftentimes get it confused is to go, how am I an image bearer of God? And oftentimes we look in the mirror and we think, oh, I'm an image bearer of God because I reflect him physically. But the problem is, is that God is not physical. He is spiritual. So God does not have a body. So the question that we asked students this last week, hey, what is it? What is it that you see when you think about God? Like what comes to your mind? And I sat in a group with six great guys and one of them's like, well, I mean, I kind of see, I kind of think about this old man. And I'm like, when you say old man, he's like, yeah, curly hair, a little bit like Santa Claus, brings good gifts. And I'm like, that's the connection for him. And I'm so grateful that he shared that because that's some of the connection that we have. I would say a good number of us were like student number two who said, I, I see the the resurrected Christ. I see, when I think of God, I think about Jesus and that's who I see. 
And then there's another one. He's like, I kind of see like this authoritarian figure. And I'm like, so like kind of like a police officer, like you think you could trust them, but you're also wondering if they're going to get write you a ticket, right? <laughs> you're like, you're taught to like, oh yeah, go to them. They're safe. And they're, but hold on, they're going to arrest me. Like that, that's kind of, you know, feels like a contradiction. And there's all these views. But the question is, is okay, why, why does it matter? And here's why. Because the way that we are image bearers most and it's a multitude of ways that flow out of this, but ultimately is that we have a spirit. And from the very onset of your life, you were given a spirit and you were a spiritual being. And we live in a place right now that even though it's physical world, there are spiritual elements that are happening even now. The scriptures tell us that angels work to help us and demons want to distract us. We know that there's an, an adversary. His name is Satan. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. We know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. There's all these things. And the question is, well, why does that even matter? It's because God has given you a spirit different than all the birds of the field or birds of the air and beasts of the field, different than all the fish in the sea. Every other living thing, whether it be flowers that you plant or trees that you grow, none of them, nothing in all the creation, not the sun, the moon, the stars, none of them could say that they reflect the very essence and the glory of God through his spirit. But we can. And what's interesting about our spirit is that it'll live forever. Now, it's not destined to live with God forever, but your spirit will live forever. It either lives with God because it's been redeemed by Christ, or it lives apart from God in, uh, in destruction because of what we've done with Christ. But your spirit lives forever. Now, the question is, why does that matter? Why do we even care? Well, he says, offer your bodies. Why? Because if you have been redeemed by Christ and his blood and you are now a living sacrifice, your body actually houses the very renewed spirit of God living inside of you that is the reflection of the very essence of God's nature in all that you do. So you are the Imago Dei. You are the image of God around the world and you are housing the very spirit and nature of God inside of you reflecting to the earth. The glory or the not so much glorious essence of God. Not that his essence isn't glorious, but the question is, is what are you reflecting and ultimately what are you projecting? This is why it matters. That's what Paul says. Are you a living sacrifice? And he starts with your body. So the question then becomes, well, okay, if my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then how am I doing and caring for the body? And I would say in the very first place is just in the area of purity. What you see what you take part in, what you're allowed to saturate your mind with. Potentially lust, former passions that creep up on you. All of those things matter. What are you pursuing? That's why Paul wrote to his friend Timothy and he warned them clearly. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, look what Paul says. He says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy. Do you see that? Underline those words or make a note. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, 
He goes on, ready for every good work. And then he gives an admonition, a warning. So flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Do you see that? What he's saying is, he goes, listen, the way that you live your lives as the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body housing the very essence of God in you, is really, really important. Why? Because we are to be honorable vessels, cleaned and ready for service, which puts into mind a whole new idea of even Ephesians 2.10, that you and I have been created by Christ to do his work in advance. That's the implication. And so he cares greatly about how and what we pursue. But even beyond that, what about the temple and how you care for it and what you eat? About what substances you put in your body, about your workout routine. You work out? No, I don't work out. Listen, I kind of created that motto in my life too. After I played college football, I kind of vowed to myself, I'm never going to work out again. Problem is that I have a little contradiction in Scripture, you know? One of the interesting things is that we just came from man camp. And you know, one of the things that we do at man camp? We eat, and we eat, and we eat, and we eat some more. And what's crazy about this is that oftentimes we come from places and settings and in our church families that we have these incredible festive dinners. Even next week at baptism, we're going to eat barbecue, and we're going to have a celebration. We're going to have Kona eyes, and we're going to have all those things. Which, listen, that's not the problem in and of itself. The, the problem becomes when we encourage one another beyond moderation. So we're in man camp. We have a little bit of food left over, actually quite a bit. And what do we say? We go, listen, we don't want to take any of this home. Go get thirds or fourths. Eat as much as you can. That's a problem. I mean, genuinely, it's a problem. Because oftentimes we are encouraging. It is the one sin that I know in the scripture that we laugh off or we encourage others in without being admonished at all. Hey, go eat all you want. I mean, go, I mean, and we encourage brothers and sisters in it. Go go get seconds. Go have, you know, listen, I don't want an email about why we shouldn't have donuts or sodas or anything like that, okay? We're not doing celery sticks and ranch or something like that next week. Although there's like a lot of you like, praise the Lord, you know. Here's the deal. Look, here's where we have to be careful too. Is there's none of us in this room that are actually the Holy Spirit. And at some point, God's got to do the transformative work in our hearts. And while we gently admonish and remind one another of what faithfulness looks like, the living sacrifice that we offer our bodies, at the end of the day, we all have to wrestle with what God desires for us in our bodies. Because here's the deal. Let's say that you work out and even you eat healthy but you don't share the gospel. You're not rendering your body in service. Do you see the application here? The application is not merely, hey, watch what you eat. The application is, is care for all of body. That, that what you see matters, that what you eat matters, the way you use your hands and your feet matter, the things that you say matter. At the end of the day, the body is the whole body. 
that if your heart beats, you render yourself in service to a great and holy and mighty God as an expression of God's work and spirit in you. And I just confess to you an area that I've really struggled over the last few years. I would say it was a struggle that I had prior to COVID, but I think it's one that's been highlighted since. Um, is this a lack of real adequate rest? Like um, I have people in my life that are pressing into me. Um, I, have, I live in community with others. We confess sin regularly, but right now I'm, I'm running hot. I'm burning oil. Um, and, and the way that's happening is, is that just in, in places that I'm serving and ways that I'm trying to be a benefit to our body, but ultimately it's destroying my health. Um, there's, there's just things that are ha- have been happening physically and even for me just mentally. And, and just like at the end of the day, I'm like, man, Lord, I've got to pay attention. And I'm so thankful that I have brothers and sisters in my life to help call that out. And, but listen, what I want you to realize is that it's the whole person. Uh, so, you know, if, if my medicine of choice is caffeine to keep me going, if yours is a Red Bull or a monster, if you're like, I don't know what a monster is, okay, that, that it's an energy drink, okay? Um, but what I want you to realize is a lot of different ways that we need to pay attention. Make sense? And so for me, it's adequate rest. And it's, it's not just sleep, but ultimately it's just caring for my soul. Because as a pastor, as a shepherd, one of the things you want to do most is care for other souls. And so it's just an area that I'm having to pay attention to. It's an area that the Lord's having to teach me some things in. That's what it looks like to be a, a living sacrifice, to offer my body. But it doesn't just say that. It says, to be a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. That's our spiritual act of worship. Now, when you look at holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship, the question you got to ask yourself is, is, okay, what is it that exactly he desires for us? And I would just say this, it is to be a reflection of who God is and his character. That's what acceptable is. But what's interesting is, is that when we think about God and his character, the very essence and the nature of who he is, there is something that comes to our mind. Now, you might think about the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentle self-control. And when we think about the fruits of the Spirit and the ways that we are to represent God as a living sacrifice, probably some of us, if I were to ask you, hey, what's God's greatest character trait? You would say he's loving, or you would say he's kind, or you would say he's forgiving, or you would say he's just, or you would say he's faithful. All these different things. But you know the characteristic that we see repeated in the scripture time and time and time again. It's there 700 plus times. The verb form over there is two to 300 times. The verb form would be a word like consecrated or it'd be the word um, sanctify. It's the idea of holiness. It is the one repetition thing about God that oftentimes we miss because we're always looking at all these other character traits that fit us a little bit better. And so you look at churches, they, their entire motto is built on the idea of love. We're going to be loving. You've got other churches that are like, man, we're going to be loving, but that's just too easy. We're going to build our entire motto, our whole mantra as a church. We're going to be truth tellers. And we just kind of build our platform there. And everyone in this room probably relies on one of those things. You're looking for a church that's either loving or you're looking for a truth or a, a, a truth-telling church. And, and we, we, we govern our lives that way. I'm, I'm looking for something. The question is this, when's the last time that you felt compelled to look for a church that is set apart, consecrated, ultimately is holy? That's the goal. Why? Because you don't just see it talked about so often in Scripture. It is the only characteristic of God 
That has a repetition even as it's spoken. Revelation chapter 4, John gives you a picture of angelic beings centered around the throne. This is what he says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Look what his words are. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within. And day and night, they never cease to say these words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Almost exact phrase that Isaiah says when he sees angelic beings. And he recognizes his um, deficiencies and he goes, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he sees angelic beings and what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You never see God is love, love, love or justice, justice, justice or wrath, wrath, wrath or forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Do you see all? Why? Because his, la- his, his love, his justice, his kindness, all of those things, his truth all flow out of his holiness. Friends, I just would tell you this. God's love without his holiness would be an expression of something watered down that would accept everything. God's truth without holiness would smite every single one of us. Do you see the the, the point? The point is, is that God is holy first and foremost. Because he is holy first and foremost, that's what he's calling us to as we're set apart. So when we think about our bodies as a living sacrifice, the ultimate goal as we eat a donut is not to say, can I have this donut? Is that too many calories? But the question is, is God, am I reflecting your holiness as, as I eat? Are my eating patterns, are they ultimately projecting your holiness in my life? Am I more dependent upon physical food or spiritual food? What am I dependent upon ultimately? It's a holiness issue. And that's why he's saying, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Friends, that's your spiritual worship. And I would say there's a myriad of areas that we probably could all look in the mirror and say, man, there's some areas that I'm not holy in. And that's the goal. The goal is not to walk out of this and go, oh man, I'll just never measure up. No, you're right without Christ. I'm not asking you to do anything in your own strength. I'm actually not asking you your next steps today are not to go out and go, hey, here's, here's how I need to evaluate all of these things about my body. That's not the goal. The goal is simply to think about, am I a living sacrifice? If my heart is beating, am I serving? Do I have life in my lungs, but yet I resemble a dead man walking? Do I say I know Jesus, but there's no life in me? You see, that's what Paul's talking about. Ultimately, we're a reflection of who God is in our lives. And he doesn't stop there. He says, you're holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he says, and don't be conformed to the world. So he goes, there's going to be a wrestle. I mean, Paul clearly talks about that in Galatian, uh, with the Galatians in chapter 5. He, I mean, he tells us there's going to be a wrestle. It's, uh, it's against the flesh, which are the things of the world, and it's against the spirit, which are the new things of God in us. That's going to always be the case. Ultimately, what we choose to feed is going to be the question. Are we going to feed the spirit or are we going to feed our flesh? Which one is going to be the winning dog in our life? Because the dog that gets the most food is the one that grows the biggest. And that's what you got to ask yourself. What am I feeding? And ultimately, what am I loving? Am I loving and conforming to the world or am I being a living sacrifice? So when you think about this idea of conformity to the world, I love this quote by Jerry Bridges. He says this, he goes, every day that we're not practicing, uh, practicing godliness, he goes, we're being conformed to the world of ungodliness around us. He goes, you get a choice. You either practice godliness, you either put on Christ, 
or you put on something different. Howard Hendricks, a former professor at DTS in Dallas, he says, you are either in the word and the word is conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ or you in the world and the world is squeezing you into its mold. At the end of the day, it's one of those things, which is why he says, don't be conformed to the world. He doesn't leave you there. but He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And we use that word transformed. It's a word that all of us should be able to understand. Whether you read Greek or understand Greek, it's the word metamorpho-o. Okay? So when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, a process of metamorphosis takes place, and when it comes out, it's a butterfly. And we all look at it and we go, that's incredible. And it's beautiful. And at our house, uh, we oftentimes about this time of year, we go searching for milkweed and we go searching for caterpillars and then we put them in a little uh, deal. And then we watch all this process happen. And it's just mind blowing. We watch this caterpillar eat everything it can for a series of days. And then we watch it go into a cocoon for about eight or 10 days. And after that, we've got this beautiful butterfly. And it's mind blowing. No matter how many times that happens, because you're like this process of transformation took place. And when you see this word here in the Greek, it's the same idea of what you would have transformed, the word that you would have at the, the transfiguration. It's this process in which you go, that's mind-blowing. And Paul says, that's what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because that's your spiritual act of worship. And don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Have a process of renewal that takes place, that you are a new creation, that you look different. And how does it happen? By the renewal of your mind. That's why Peter writes it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. He says, therefore, look at what he says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Because what? You, you have a chance to be sober-minded. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. All I see there is world. But as he who's called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's the goal. That's the goal, friends. I don't know why else we would gather in this place today, but ultimately the goal is, God, would you transform my heart? Or would you take this wickedness inside of me? God, would you take these crazy thoughts captive? And Lord, would you conform me, transform me, renew me? God, continue to do a work every day. As subtle as the enemy lies, God, would you remind me of the word of truth? God, would you help me to be conformed to your image? And so a prayer that I pray for my children every single night, they take it to, to heart. It's memory even in their minds, Philippians 4, 7, which just says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, parents, I implore you to be guarding your kids' hearts and minds, praying for your hearts and minds of your children. Because our world wants to swallow them up. And I'm telling you, every image they see, everything that they're fixed upon, whether it be their gaming systems or the wide world web or the world wide web, either what you want to call it, it doesn't matter. All of it wants who they are. And friends, can I just tell you, listen real carefully. The world wants to change their identity. The world explicitly wants to give your daughter the permission to say she's not a woman. 
and the world, if not careful, and even the church is, is in some ways obliged to say, you do what you do, express yourself the way you want. But the problem is, is that if God is the creator and we are his creation, and ultimately he's conforming us back to the very pattern of who he is, then we don't get the opportunity to tell the potter what the clay should be. Now listen, here's the challenge, friends. Is that even if we're having this conversation with friends, they're not our enemies. And, and far be it for us as a church, if we're not careful, we will explicitly draw a hard line in the sand and say, this is truth, and I'm having no part of anything that's untruthful. The problem is that's not how our Lord worked. He is the essence of grace and truth, which means that he is the perfect velvet brick. Which means that he had this ability to draw a line to the sand and say, hey, from here on, you're going to have to follow me. But there were times where he spent time with people that you and I would either feel guilty about or we would feel above. And why? Because he, wants to, he wanted to transform them. He, he wanted to renew their hearts and minds. He wanted to renew who they were. He wanted to restore and reconcile ultimately his creation back to the original intent of the creator. And friends, here's what you've got to know. Right now we're living in a day and age where things are confused, distorted, and ultimately broken. But God's intent is to reconcile. And, and maybe you're living in the midst of a brokenness in your marriage. God, God, God's heart is reconciliation. Maybe you're living in the midst of an estranged family situation because you have, you have a child who identifies with the same sex. Friends, the goal is not to ostracize. It's ultimately to desire reconciliation. Reconciliation with a God in heaven who desires for them to be image bears in a way that reflects his nature. You see the point, the implication? This is a big question and ultimately requires big answers. And the big answers come from God's word. Do you see? This is why it matters. Pray that your kids' hearts and minds are guarded. Pray that we would set our eyes on eternal things. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If you've been raised with Christ, which means you have a new spirit, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. Just remember to fix our gaze on Christ. And then more than that, renew your minds in righteousness and holiness. Choose wisely what, what it is we allow into our hearts and minds and bodies. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new nature, Christ, which is the spirit. So the implications of that are very vast. And maybe you're like, well, I don't know if that's a good decision or a bad decision. Well, just run it through this filter, Philippians 4.8. That's your filter. Like you're wondering, hey, should I do it? Just ask a series of questions from Philippians 4.8. That is your filter. Parents, we've been talking about this for 11 years. 11 years we've given you the filter of Philippians 4.8. Should we do this at Halloween? Ask the question. So I would just tell you, that's a practical place for us. This year, as our oldest gets old enough to go with his friends places, we had to sit down and explicitly say why we're not going here 
at Halloween. And it wasn't because I think a lot of evil is going to happen here, or I'm afraid that you're going to have some satanic attack. That's not the goal. That's, that's, that's foolishness. Not because it couldn't happen, but because we're not going to allow it because these things are the key, Philippians 4, 8. So use it. And you can use it for every single thing in your entire life, not just over a holiday. You can use it for every, it's an incredible filter for you and your family. It's an incredible filter for husbands. An incredible filter for wives. And why? Because the latter part of verse two says, because by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable, and ultimately what is perfect. What? We can actually discern and know what the will of God is, what's acceptable, what's good, what's perfect. Absolutely. How does that happen? You run it through some solid filters in God's word. You ask a series of questions. When you have doubt, you pull in God's people and you say, hey, am I seeing this clearly? Hey, let's talk through that. And friends, can I just tell you that if I didn't have God's people in my life pressing into me on a series of issues, I, I would be foolish because I have it in me. And so we test everything. And 1 Thessalonians 5.21 is your verse for that. It just says, but test everything and then hold fast to what is good. Test everything. There is nothing in the world that couldn't be tested. From the movies we watch to the songs we sing, ultimately everything we do could be tested. And it would please God to do such. And so I encourage you, friends, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is your spiritual act of worship. And may our hearts and our minds be transformed. Why? So that we could understand and so we could discern what the will of God is, what is acceptable, what's good, what's perfect. May the Lord help us by the help of his spirit. Let me pray for us, friends. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the fact that we all have a little extra time. And uh, pray, Lord, that the extra time we spent would actually encourage our hearts. And I pray it would remind people of your faithfulness. And Lord, if there is someone in this room that, Lord, all they heard was that I'm different. And they felt in some ways condemnation because what they're feeling in the inside is not who they are or what they see in the mirror. Lord, I pray you would renew their hearts and minds. And ultimately, I pray that you would give us the ability to sit down and have conversations and explore why it is sometimes we feel the way we do in our flesh. Lord, ultimately, right now, we're all broken and alienated and estranged until we have the Holy Spirit live in us. And so, Father, for people in this room who have not experienced the loving kindness and the forgiveness and the loving nature of God through your son, Jesus, I pray today would be the day. For those of us that have, I pray it would be the day where we lay aside those things that so easily entangle us. That, Lord, we would lay a cumbersome load at your feet and, Lord, that we would cast our cares upon you. Those of us who are weary, we're heavy laden, Lord, we trust that you'll give us rest. Rest from our work, rest from our striving, rest from us trying to appease and be good enough for others. Lord, help us to rest in you, that you are our creator, that we are your creation, that we are clay in the potter's hand. And we ask, God, that you would do work in us and that you would conform us to your image. That you would mold us, shape us, use us for your glory and the good for hundreds, if not thousands of people around us. 
to the glory of God across the globe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.